0: I couldn't work under a system that I didn't fundamentally believe in. I also couldn't really look at parents and say, yes, this school is amazing. Work with us, when I didn't believe it to be amazing.
1: From High Tech High, this is the Unboxed Learning Podcast. I'm Alec Patton. This episode is part of a series we're calling Groundwork, where I'm talking to school leaders who are laying the groundwork for something big. In this episode, I'm talking to Brandy Williams, founder of Generation Success Academy in New Orleans. Right now, Generation Success is running as a summer program for exceptional learners and as a program within three New Orleans schools. But they're applying for a charter this year to open in 2021 as a center for grades 9 and 10 and add grade levels from there. And while they're starting in New Orleans, Brandy has a vision for a national network of schools. Brandy's a fellow in the High Tech High GSE's New School Creation Fellowship, so I got a chance to talk to her when she came out to our campus in the fall. At the start of our conversation, I found out that Brandy's son was born while she was an undergraduate at the University of New Orleans, which seemed like a big deal to me. But for her, not so much.
0: Listen, when you grow up in New Orleans in that kind of trauma with that kind of background, that is nothing. Having a child in college is literally nothing. Um, I could do that in my sleep at this point.
1: And she's right. Having a kid midway through college, a planned kid, I should add, really is pretty much the simplest element in the story of her life. Here it is.
0: I grew up originally in the Lower Ninth Ward. Um, I'm certain everyone's heard of this. That was basically ground zero for Katrina's... um, Big devastation in New Orleans. Uh, we call that back of town. Um, it's literally the back of the Ninth Ward by the canal. Essentially, I am the child that I seek to serve. My dad was shot by police when I was two. But being the the product of so many other traumas, that was normal for me. But that should never be normal for a child.
1: And so he was. Was he? Was he shot and then? Yes. Incarcerated. Yes. Right and that was just that and that's been since then.
0: Mhm. He got life without the possibility of parole.
1: Do you have a relationship with your dad? Do you do you talk to him much?
0: No, not particularly.
1: We're going to skip ahead a little bit now to college.
0: So I started my college journey at the University of New Orleans. Um, Hurricane Katrina hit in my senior semester.
1: Were you there were you in New Orleans when Katrina
0: Our belongings were there. Um, my husband and I were married in 2005. We got married in May. Katrina hit in August, so everything that we had just received, pictures, wedding albums, everything at that point, we lost everything. We left literally the Saturday before Katrina hit with the clothes on our backs and like $600 in our bank account. So what did you do? We left to go with my husband's sister. She had a house in North Texas. So we stayed with her for that first month. And then once we realized the devastation, like we saw our neighborhood on the news. So we knew everything was gone. My husband and I made the decision that we weren't gonna return. And that meant that I got a job instead of going back directly to college. My husband found a job we had at the that time, um, our son. We just, we had to make it work. We've got a brand new baby that's a year old. We don't have a choice so we stayed in texas for 10 years before we came back to new orleans and i came back to open a program for tulane university
1: what jobs you start doing
0: the first job right after um which let me know that that was not the future i wanted was a customer service representative at walmart yeah no (laughs) that's not for me that's not the life that i want to live immediately thereafter i ended up with an office job working for Cure Water Damage, which literally was a company that was doing the mitigation of Hurricane Katrina in um, Louisiana and Mississippi. So they were doing water restoration work there. And then after I left Cure Water, I went back to college. I knew I wanted to finish, but I was waiting for my husband to get into a position that you know he had a sustainable job and he was good. He worked for those first two years in an alternative school, And then that third year, which is the year that I ended up going back to school, um, he took a job with Children's Hospital and ran their um, help desk.
1: What happens next?
0: I went through alternative certification with uh, the new teacher project. Um, At the time, it was called Texas Teaching Fellows. I taught math my first year, actually. Math for me was never my strong suit in school, but I understood it. The kids did very well. At the end of the year, I had a 90% pass rating. It felt so natural, and I loved it so much that I have stayed there for this entirety of my career.
1: At that school or in that? No, 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 the, no, no. no. Um,
0: just an education in education and Just in an education. I actually only stayed at that school one year because, as you can probably assume, with a 90% pass rating in math, they don't give you the opportunity to move. And my first love is in English. I begged the school to allow me to teach English. They wouldn't, so I said I'm gone and I left to go to another school that let me teach English.
1: And at this point, you're still in Texas?
0: Yes, I did not leave Texas until 2014.
1: What brought you back to New Orleans?
0: I opened a program for Tulane University. Youth 16 to 24 who were disengaged from school and work, the Tulane University campus started an earn and learn program where they were tutored and trained to get their GEDs, but given job skills that were marketable in high need, high interest areas.
1: What was it that made you think I need to start a new school.
0: I started to see some of the writing on the wall in Texas. So my son is a a twice exceptional student. He is both gifted and talented, but he also has a mathematic deficiency, dyscalculia in Texas, he was in schools that he was one of the few minorities. And so the ADHD component of his life was constantly targeted and he was constantly punished or separated from the class. And fast forward, we decided to move back to New Orleans. Now this is some years down the line. My son is about to enter fifth grade. At that point, we had gotten him a 504 plan for the ADHD nature because he was really, really hyper intensive. But I, I never felt like it was something that medication was fixing or even helping. So when we got to New Orleans, we, my husband and I, made the decision to pull him off of meds, but work with his 504 plan to really structure it. And that's when we started to see some of the bigger issues. Uh, Schools were very resistant. Even though I was an educator, they were resistant to input. They were resistant to working with families. They were resistant to doing anything really that was gonna benefit my son because it was more work for them. The following year, my son goes into sixth grade and sixth grade was his transition into middle school. So it's all kinds of transitions that are happening that are crazy. And one thing after another, his grades start tanking. Um, Fifth grade and before fifth grade, he was an AB student. Sixth grade year, he turned into a DF student. We're like, I don't know what's happening at home. He's doing okay with us. We get to right before Christmas and my son attempts suicide. It's at that point that my husband and I brought suit against the Orleans Parish School Board. We actually were victorious in that. We found several places that they had violated his 504 and Persons with Disabilities Act. We knew that we had to do more, and what we requested of them was that they redid their policies and restructured how they interacted with parents, but that wasn't enough still. After two more years in the public school system, He was still not where he needed to be. He still didn't have the same interventions, the same abilities, the same hope that he had before he got back to New Orleans. Um, And I just I got tired of him being looked at as a statistic. So I wanted to become a part of the change. But I knew I couldn't do that in someone else's system. And so that's really the impetus for starting a school.
1: So you're, really, you're starting it for, for kids like your
0: son. Yes. When I introduce my model, I tell people I'm a failure because it is through failing my son that I realized how many other children I also failed. And I'm a really good educator. I told you before, math, I had 90% pass rates. For the rest of my education career in the classroom, I had 98% pass rates in English. And I didn't teach just gifted and talented students. I taught ESL learners because I'm ESL certified. So to get an ESL learner with a 98-cent pass rate on the state exam is pretty freaking good. But I still wasn't doing enough. I wasn't helping enough students. I wasn't making enough difference. And so that really, when I look back on it, uh, I think about how many times I was a part of an oppressive system that just pushed a test. Or how many times I didn't use the relationship to really capitalize the health and well-being of a student or their families. So I want to stop that now.
1: When you were going through this with your son, did it change the way you thought about the kids who you teach?
0: Absolutely. At that point, I was already an administrator in schools um, in New Orleans. And so what it helped me to understand, A, I started really evaluating how my teachers understood what they said they understood. It it became painfully apparent to me that my son's teachers didn't even understand what 504 plans were. They didn't understand how to effectively document for IEPs either. And so I really dug deep and started training my teachers better on how to interact with parents, how to interact with students, what those data points look like, what the IEP plans were actually saying, because that was a fundamental disconnect. It also gave me a greater sense of empathy for the struggle of students and then the frustrations of parents. When parents came into the office frustrated about something that wasn't happening in a classroom, the normal consensus for educators is to, oh my God, why are you here? Why are you being, et cetera, et cetera. But I had to take the step back and understand that I don't know what led to this frustration. And even if nothing did, and this is just a new frustration, it's still valid. And so it's helped me relationally with parents and with students.
1: So you decide that because of your son, because of what you're seeing, that you need to build something from the ground up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you make that decision, how do you do that? What was the first step?
0: Honestly, at this point, I don't necessarily remember. The more I started like toiling with working inside of a school, the sicker I got to my stomach because I just wasn't in that mindset any longer. Like, I couldn't work under a system that I didn't fundamentally believe in. I also couldn't really look at parents and say, yes, this school is amazing. Work with us when I didn't believe it to be amazing. So yeah, I think that was kind of it.
1: So you make that decision. What do you do what do you do then?
0: I started with the 4.0 Schools Essentials program. Um, essentials is generally used if you have an idea in education, but you don't really have a, a whole lot fleshed out for that idea. Um, and what they do is they, they teach you how to delineate your customer from your user and understand and frame a problem that you wish to solve.
1: What is the difference between your customer and your user?
0: Um, essentially, the customer is the person who's paying for it, the decision maker, in a sense. The user may not be the person that pays for it, it's just the person that's using the services.
1: By that way, like, High Tech High's user is the kids and their parents, but the state of California is the customer. The yes. people who are doing the per-pupil funding. Yes. The-
0: Fellows that come through High Tech High's new fellowship creation are also users, right? So that's the major difference. But the Essentials program helped me to really hone in on what I wanted to do, like what is the thing that I hope I want to serve and solve and etc. cetera. And what is that? The thing that I, I came up with initially was Twice Exceptional Learners Only. I tried to pilot that idea pop-up and the, the goal of 4.0 is to do many tests, many small tests at one time um, with like low stakes. When I tried to pilot it, I realized how hard it was to find users because in order to be twice exceptional, you have to have diagnosis, diagnoses, excuse me, um, already. That wasn't happening a lot, especially with non-traditional gifted and talented students. So I didn't really have a whole lot of people to test from. So it's like, yeah, this is not going to work. So I got to broaden this some. And then I did the tiny... Fellowship for 4.0 the difference between the essentials and the tiny fellowship tiny is designed to Take an idea through a full pilot, right? Not just a little pop-up, but you you're really honing in on principles of the design principles of equity that you want to address and um, empathy and efficacy I did the tiny program ran a full-scale pilot. We did a, a summer program that lasted six weeks And, or four weeks, excuse me. And in that four week time, we hit all of our benchmarks, all of our proof points. So I was like, wait, we have something here. I kept iterating and kept piloting for a couple of years. I actually had planned originally to make Indianapolis School One. As fate would have it, my mother got sick and I was drawn right back to New Orleans. So I've decided now to stop running from New Orleans and New Orleans Metro will become School One.
1: How many schools are you thinking of?
0: <laughs> We're taking over the world one school at a time.
1: All right. And so is there a number on that? Do you have, do you have a number in your head? Or I'm not that...
0: going to divulge my number, but it is a number. Yes. All right. And it's more than five.
1: And you're thinking national?
0: Yes. Country.
1: Where are you at now?
0: So I'm not very far along, I feel, um, in that journey. I have piloted the model seven times. We have used each iteration or each pilot to inform the new design or the new design principles. We've done the pilots after year one with the community. And so students and parents serve on our board and they are advisors in our advisory council for the design and implementation of the school. We have fundraised and we have a fully functioning nonprofit currently. The nonprofit does a whole host of programming. We have our program, our model in three actual running schools right now. Um, One in Orleans Parish and two in Jefferson Parish. And so we've been using that also as kind of test points and proof points. We will apply for charter this year with an open of 2021. And I think that's pretty much the, the long and short of it. That's like where we are.
1: So how do you pilot a school without being a school
0: you pilot components of the month. During the summers, we run a full-day program. This past summer, we became NORD, which is New Orleans Recreational Department Partners. And so the city actually funded us to put on this summer program. And we did it with teenagers, 13 to 17, or 16, excuse me. And um, the teens started 7.30 in the morning and left at 3.00. So it's like a full-fledged date. We're responsible for lunch. We're responsible for ensuring that transportation happens, the curriculum, and field trips.
1: What's your target user? Describe describe who your target user is now.
0: Sure. We want all students, but the model itself is designed for all exceptional learners. And so targeting-wise, we look at students who are 13, which is Entering thirteen fourteen, entering high school age um, to 16, which is technically for New Orleans, that ninth 10th grade year, mm-hmm. because we'll open school one as a 9-10 center. Okay and build up after that every year. But our students are those that want to become social change agents because there's definitely a social justice component to our model that are looking for a social-emotional learning environment that also gives them the freedom and flexibility to understand and evaluate, practice within, and learn more about their own passions. Currently, we're still struggling with the funding. What we've been able to do... We've honed our own internal personalized learning plan development process. That plan process uses, I don't want to say limited resources, but we try to make sure that we're effectively using resources so that we're not overtaxing a system that will already be hard to follow. And so we use all best practices, but we really hone in on doing those best practices well so as to be more efficient with what we do have. We do pretty well as a 504 with fundraising. We don't get a whole lot of local dollars, but major corporations like the Dollar General Foundation has been um, a longtime supporter. Uh, Camelback Ventures has been an amazing, amazing supporter. New School Venture Funds was also um, someone that we are currently looking at potentially being, um, being a funder. And in New Orleans, we did get money from um, new schools for New Orleans. They became a funder for us.
1: That's Camelback, not the water bottle company. No. So how did you know about all these cool organizations that help you do this?
0: Network, definitely. That's a big one. Um, Your network is really everything in entrepreneurial work, specifically as a person of color. Your venture will only be as strong as your network. And so building your network is a, a critical component of this work.
1: And how did you start your network?
0: Trial and error. Um... I started it really with people in the fellowships that I started. So I'm looking around now, even in the new school creation fellowship here, probably half of the people in this cohort I've worked with in another fellowship. And so having them in my organizational network, understanding, hey, we saw this opportunity, we know this fits your model. And I've done that with several people that are here. So that's like a a big one. 4.0 actually does a blast to their alumni of upcoming things that we can apply for. Camelback Ventures does the same thing now. It's just making sure you keep your head to the ground on all the funding opportunities.
1: I asked Brandy if she could meet her younger self, living in North Texas with her husband and her new baby, having just lost their home to Hurricane Katrina, what advice would she give to that person?
0: The me now would tell that me that I have to embrace the political nature of this business and of this work. That I have to take risks because I'm not going to move if I don't. And that I need to be very certain of and committed to the purpose and the why behind the work. That me probably would not have the stamina to do this because this me has had to endure lots of no's, lots of shut doors, lots of missed opportunities. And so I think that would be another thing just to, to be encouraging and to tell that me from this me, give yourself some grace and give yourself some time.
1: What do you think that you would think of you now?
0: That me wouldn't recognize the me today. That me would definitely be shocked possibly feel like they didn't fit in with the me of today, because they wouldn't, if I'm being quite honest. I have grown in this process so much that I don't even recognize old me when looking at me today.
1: That was Brandi Williams, founder of Generation Success Academy in New Orleans and a new school creation fellow at High Tech High's Graduate School of Education. This episode of the Unboxed Learning Podcast was written and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. Thanks for listening.